CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. By most measures, David Brooks had good reason to call his life a success. His New York Times column was widely read and respected. He was well-known as a television and radio political commentator, and his books routinely became bestsellers. But he fell into a personal crisis when he realized he'd chosen the wrong standards for measuring success. He started on a road to find the values that had genuine meaning and at the same time realized the country needed to reassess what matters too. And so I spent six years thinking, how do you get out of the valley, both as an individual, but also as a society, how do we get out of this valley of, of isolation, disconnection, rudeness, meanness, and tribalism? That journey is the subject of Brooks' new book, The Second Mountain. I'll talk with him after the news. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. David Brooks has had a long and successful life in journalism. He began his career at the fabled City News Bureau of Chicago, where young green reporters were drilled on getting the facts and reporting them honestly and succinctly. He honed his political philosophy as a writer for the National Review under the tutelage of the giant of conservative thinking, William F. Buckley, Jr. Brooks worked at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Times before arriving at the New York Times, where he began his career as a Times columnist in 2003. He also appears regularly on NPR and PBS newscasts. While he's viewed largely as a political commentator, Brooks has also written extensively on moral values, ethics, and personal character. His five previous books deal in one way or another with those themes, not politics. His new book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life, is based in large part on his own journey. He tells us that the first mountain he climbed was the search for professional success and personal happiness. But once Brooks had achieved those goals, he found himself depressed and feeling unfulfilled, and realized something bigger was missing from his life. It was then he began his climb up the second mountain toward a more meaningful and connected life. That search is the subject of his book and our conversation. David Brooks, thanks for being here for Political Rewind. It's a pleasure Pleasure to to be here for me. Uh, Before we talk about uh, the second mountain, if, if you don't mind, I think people are really intrigued about you. They read you in the New York Times, Sometimes you're writing about politics. Sometimes you're writing about life questions. So because people uh, see different aspects of you, if, if you don't mind, could we start by talking a little bit about your life and your growth? The narcissist in me loves that. So uh, sure. <laughs> you grew up basically in New York City. Yep. Um, I grew up sort of near Greenwich Village. I went to a place called Grace Church School, which is on 10th and Broadway. If anybody knows the Strand Bookstore in yeah. Lower Manhattan, yeah. that's right where it is. And the story I tell about that was um, when I was seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, (laughs) and I decided at that instant I wanted to become a writer. Really? Uh, And I've pretty much written every day in the past 50 years, except maybe two or 300. I try to get a little writing every day. My joke is in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. (laughs) So that was my values. Before you were seven, you tell a story that when you were around five, your parents, your father was a professor at, at, at NYU, NYU, right? Yeah. They took you to an event in Central Park. Yeah. It was a... A bee-in. A bee-in. Where hippies would go just to be. Yeah. And yeah. my parents weren't totally hippies, but we went to this thing. And um, they, one of the things the hippies did was they set a garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate how little they cared about money and material things. And I was five, and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can, so I broke from the crowd, reached in the fire, grabbed the money, and ran away. Uh, And that was my first step over to the right. (laughs) Um, You also tell a funny story about your uh, family's Jewish background. Uh, You say that you lived as part of a Jewish community where you uh, think Yiddish, 
but act, act British. British. <laughs> so that it was a way of assimilating back in those days. Jews wanted to fit in with America. And so what was the classiest thing you could imagine? Well, it was like Victorian manners. It was like, um, you know, the Trollope novels or Jane Austen novels. And so a lot of, um, a big case of plague of Anglophilia swept over a lot of Jewish communities. And so the, they gave their male sons names that were completely English, like Norman, Milton, Sidney, Lionel. Yeah. And pretty soon everyone assumed those were Jewish names, so it didn't work. It wasn't a good way of assimilating. But I grew up a bit in that country culture. My parents were Victorian scholars. My first two turtles when I was a kid were <laughs> named Disraeli and Gladstone, which is 19th century <laughs> prime ministers. So that's, that's the world we inhabited. But I also had this other side to my life. I went to a church school. Uh, and I went to a church camp for 15 years, so I had a very Christian life. And my joke is there were a lot of Jews because it was New York in this church school. And in the choir, we would sing the hymns, but to square it with our religion, we wouldn't sing the word Jesus. And so the volume <laughs> would drop down and it would come back up. Uh, but I lived, uh, I told this joke, I should never have used this phrase, but now I'm stuck with it, that I grew up religiously bisexual. I was uh, yeah, yeah. part Jewish and part really in Christian institutions. You went to the University of Chicago. Yes. And studied there, which would have been another place where you would have developed your uh, thinking, as, your intellect, the intellectual yeah. side of your brain, I would yeah, think. Yeah, we, we, when I went there, there were still refugees from World War II. The German professors were still there. And they taught us the great books, Aristotle and Kant and, and Hobbes. I read, I think I counted, over the course of four years, I wrote 26 papers about Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. <laughs> Um, but they taught them to us, like the keys to the Magic Kingdom were in these books, that if you studied them hard, you would learn how to lead a good life. And so it was really an evangelical atmosphere. Uh, and it changed my life because it really made me a little less shallow than I am naturally inclined to be. Because once you've tasted the pure wine, the, the Kool-Aid doesn't seem that good. Yeah. And so it's given me this lifelong desire, both to sort of understand what life is really all about, but also to see well you think that seeing well is normal. You look at the world, but we work in politics. Most people in politics don't see accurately. They yeah. see what they want to see. Yeah. And so to see well, you have to study the masters who were objective. And for me, George Orwell was a great figure like that. He just saw reality, whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. He said he had the ability to face unpleasant facts. And one of my favorite uh, sayings is from John Ruskin, who my father wrote a book about, who was a 19th century sort of cultural critic. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said, the more, the older I get, the more I think the more important, most important thing is to see something and say what you saw in a clear way. That thousands can talk for one who can think, but millions can think for one who can see. Yeah. And so the seeing reality accurately is tremendously important for anybody in our business or anybody, period. You work at City News Bureau in Chicago, which was a legendary place to train uh, yeah. journalists. I mean, just an extraordinary uh, a training ground. Uh, the, one of the bywords at City News was, if your mother tells you she loves you, check your fact. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that, that was it. And uh, I covered, I was on the crime beat, and uh, I covered a lot of very stupid criminals. So I covered guys, like there were four guys who broke out of jail, and they got hungry, so they went and ate at the restaurant across the street in the window, and hence got caught. Uh, somebody wanted to do some armed robbery, so he robbed the McDonald's where he was working. They all knew him. And so, but I came home every night with a story, yeah. an amazing story to tell. And that's when I really decided I was going to go into journalism. I wasn't going to go into whatever else it could have been. Uh, I was going to go into journalism. And it's been great because you don't get to do stuff, but you get to be around amazing people who are doing stuff. You had an interesting introduction to William F. Buckley Jr. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah, it was like the big break in my life. Yeah. Uh, he came to college when I was at Chicago. And he had just written a very pretentious book called Overdrive, which was filled with name dropping. And so I wrote a parody of him for being a name dropping blowhard. And it was really mean. Um, you know, it said at Yale, Buckley formed two magazines, one called the National Buckley and one called the Buckley Review, which he merged to form the Buckley Buckley. And uh, he came and gave a speech to the student body. And at the end of it, he said, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. He had seen the parody. He had seen the parody. I thought it was funny and made that offer. And sadly, I wasn't in the audience. <laughs> I was in my socialist phase then, and I'd been hired to debate Milton Friedman on a PBS show as <laughs> Milton Talks to College Students. Uh, but three years later, I called Buckley up and said, is that offer still open? And it was, and I went to National Review. And for 18 months, he was my mentor. Yeah. 
So I think that that leads us into a conversation because this is you climbing your first mountain, right? right? Yeah. Your, your book, uh, the second mountain, and, and we should say the, the subtitle is The Quest for a Moral Life, which is an important part of what the book is. You start by talking about it in a very personal way. You talk about your first mountain climb and how fortunate you have been in your career. You, you work with a William F. Buckley. You, you are a successful and um, well-read, famous columnist at the New York Times. You've written books that have been successes. Um, and then in 2013, the roof falls in on you. Yeah. And you talk about that very openly. Help us with that. Yeah, part of it that. wasn't going to be in the original version, but my early reader, a student at Penn who was doing a little research for me, said, you got to put yourself in the book. If it's about relationships, how can you not be in the book? You have to show that you're relational and you have to be vulnerable. And so that was a little scary to start with. But basically what happened was I'd, I'd had achieved all the success, but in the course of it, I'd fallen for some of the lies our culture tells. And there are lies like career success makes you feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that is not true, I guarantee you. Or I can make myself happy. The happiest is, is an individual thing, that if I just lose 15 pounds or get better at yoga, I'll be happy. And we all know happiness is really out of, flows out of relationships. It flows out of not being self-sufficient, but defeating self-sufficiency and being dependent on others and they're dependent on you. Uh, and so I'd fallen for a lot of these lies and I'd come to value uh, time over people because I was trying to be productive. And so I had this inner clock in my head, got to keep moving, got to keep yeah. moving. And so as a result, nobody really confided in me. I had a lot of weekday friends that I could talk about politics with. I didn't have a lot of weekend friends, which is the real kind. And then my marriage had ended. My you kids, were married 27 years. Right. And that ended. Right. So, so that's a shock. Not just some short-term marriage right, here. Right. And then my kids had, had gone off or were going off to college. So I was living alone in an apartment, and I was just working. Uh, workaholism is a very nice way to avoid any spiritual or emotional problem. Yeah. And so I was just working, 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 aware that I was very lonely, and my weekends were completely, complete silences. And I was aware that this was really the re results of some bad cultural choices and the bad culture around me in which I'd been raised. Uh, and so I, w I went through the ditch, the valley. And as I was going through the valley, a lot of other Americans were going through the valley. Mm -hmm. One of the secrets of my life is something that happens to me is often happening to a lot of people. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have a crisis of disconnection to this day in our society where the number of people who say they're lonely is very high. The number of people who say no one really knows me is very high. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors. The suicide rate has gone up 30% in the last uh, 20 years. The teenage suicide rate has gone up 70%. Mm -hmm. uh, 72,000 people die of opiate addiction. It's all disconnection. And so I spent six years thinking, how do you get out of the valley? Both as an individual, but also as a society. How do we get out of this valley of, of isolation, disconnection, rudeness, meanness, and tribalism? I I want to read one sentence from the book that really says everything in one sentence about what you were experiencing at that point in 2013 in your life. You say, I was unplanted, lonely, humiliated, scattered. Yeah. Um, that's a, that, when I read that sentence, my heart went out to you because it, first of all, because of your candor in sharing that with all of us, but what it must have been like for you yeah. to have gone through it's that It's interesting. Experience. My mom died about uh, two years ago. And that was a bad valley, but that was a valley not of my own doing. This, in 2013, was a valley of my own doing in, yeah. in large part, and the culture at large. And so I, that's, I think that's why the sense of humiliation was there. And also, the just you realize that the void in your social life is related to a void in yourself, which you haven't really gone down and explored. And it, when you're really busy all the time, or when you're able to communicate, it's able to, you're able to not do the inner work that you need to, to have. And, to fill up yourself. And so sometimes life has to knock you around to tender you up to, so you can actually do that work. So lest people think that this sounds like it's a self-help book, uh, you've already said something I think terribly important. Number one, you do talk about individual journeys and we'll talk about what the second mountain is, but you also do tell us this is a societal issue and it's something that we as Americans uh, deal with. And I think it's an, uh, unavoidable that as we talk about your book, 
that we're going to see examples of what Trump's America right. uh, looks like. But so uh, you say that whole societies have these uh, valleys, which are the same. They're not only lonely, it's distrust, a crisis of meaning, tribalism. So you're not just talking about how you can be a better person. Right. You're talking about the crisis that we have as a society. Yeah. I mentioned all those isolation statistics, but distrust is a big one. If you asked people a generation ago, do you trust the institutions of your society? 70% said, yeah. Now it's 22%. Yeah. Do you trust the people around you? A generation ago, 60% said, yeah, people around me are trustworthy. Now it's down to 32% and 19% millennials. The younger you get, the more distrusting people are. And so people are alone. And when you leave people naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They revert to tribe. And tribalism seems like a way to have community, but community is based on mutual affection. We love the same town or the same neighborhood. Tribalism is based on mutual hatred. We hate the same other. Yeah. And so it's a very different mentality. It's sort of the dark twin of community. And it's, um, it's based on a scarcity mentality. Uh, it's based on a zero sum. It's a zero sum struggle for existence. It's our group against their group. Yeah. So we got to build walls, erect barriers. It's and entirely binary. Right, exactly. And we are experiencing that right now. Yeah, and that's our politics. Uh, it, and the, the illusion of our politics is each side thinks it's going to win a total victory over the other someday. But we're each going to be in here in this country. We're going to have to live with each other, and we've got to find a way to do that. And I think it grows out of, you know, we've got a lot of different problems in the country, global warming and economic, but we have a spiritual and relational problem yeah. that drives a lot of the bad things in our life. You know, it strikes me, you say the right thing to do in suffering, there are some people who go into that valley and you tell us they, they just f fail completely. They never get to the other side. They never get to that second mountain um, where they're starting to look at how they can be contributors to society, how right. they can be better human beings in terms of their outreach to yeah. others, is that a right. fair way of describing yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, on the first mountain, you're living for your ego. Yeah. And it's natural, you wanna make a mark in the world, you wanna achieve some success, you wanna feel like you're contributing. And so you're really conscious of how do, how do people think of me. But then in the valley, what you discover is the deeper desires, the desires of your heart yeah. to live in close relationship with other people, and the desires of your soul to serve some real fundamental good. And you think, oh, these desires are better. <laughs> And when you realize it and you begin to feel and cultivate those desires, those emotions, then you're ready for a larger life. So you say the right thing to do in suffering is to stand erect, wait, see what that suffering has to teach you. So again, if you don't mind, let me put this in the world that we're living in today. Um, as much as we like, like political rewind, we're very proud of the fact that we have respectful, civil conversations in which we invite uh, Republicans, Democrats to sit and talk right. out what's going on, but we ask them to do it with respect. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is, as much as I feel good about that, we're none of us really standing erect <laughs> and confronting the facts. We prefer the tribalism. We, right. you know, am I, is that a fair yeah, point? Yeah, well, we prefer to be around people like ourselves. Right, right. And, you know, I, in 2015, I wrote 8 million columns all saying, don't worry, Donald Trump will never get the Republican nomination. Yeah. And after I got that wrong, and I got it wrong because I was wa living in Washington, I did a lot of work in New York, and I was teaching at Yale. So I was on the Acela from Washington to New Haven. Yeah. You know, how could I get out of touch with America? Uh, and so I spent the next year just in Trump country, and I've spent the last year traveling all around the country, uh, and just being around Trump voters. And sometimes it was unpleasant, uh, but most of the times it was great. Um, and they, had a, they were very realistic about Trump. They had a reason to vote for him. And I may disagree with it. I sometimes say Trump is the wrong answer to the right question. And basically, they, they were, so a lot of them were doing okay personally, but their towns were collapsing. Yeah. And so they did it on behalf of their town. I need a change for my town. Yeah. And so they, they had a reason to vote for the guy. My wife has a favorite quote, which she uses in her work a lot. She says, um, enemies are people whose stories you don't yet know. Yeah. It's very similar to what yeah. you're talking about. And we just stereotype so much in this society, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, but each human being, is a, once you are living out of your heart and soul, you see that each human being is infinitely dignified yeah. and infinitely complicated. C.S. Lewis once said, if we had never met a human and you met one for the first time, you'd be inclined to worship this creature. Because think of all the things we can do, like, Tigers or penguins are really loyal to each other, but they don't love the way we love. Like it's, there's an extra layer there. A friend of mine has a saying, um, 
when her first daughter was born, she said, I found I loved her more than evolution required. I, that, I, I have that in all caps, yeah. because I think it's one of the greatest quotes I've read in yeah. a long time. Yeah, because it, we are animals, but we're more than just animals. There's something spiritual and emotional about us, and that extra layer is what you find. Yeah. So, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading the book, you, you certainly, loneliness is a theme, and by the way, I, it strikes me that one of the loneliest people on the planet seems to be Donald Trump. Yeah, and you know, I, I would say he's not only incapable of giving love, he's incapable of receiving love. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he is, in, like, he is a, a parody of the first mountain. It's all about financial success, it's always about ego, it's you gotta admire me, you, you gotta think well of me, it's all about combat. Uh, and so he is the pure creature. But, but, it, but it must be, when we think about what we think his life looks like every day, yeah. we, we know he spends his mornings watching Fox and Friends, yeah. uh, tweeting, sitting alone yeah. and tweeting. We're told that he doesn't, he's got all this um, personal time, right. that he doesn't spend a, m much time right. with other people around him. Um, at night he's watching TV. He seems like the epitome of what you talk about yeah. in terms of a lonely yeah. human being. Yeah, and I don't want to psychoanalyze from no, far, I get but that, I do think but he, somewhere he wasn't loved. You, your book is filled with conversations about what it means to love, and I want to talk about that in just a moment, but let's do this. Let's get a quick break out of the way. I'm talking with uh, David Brooks, whose new book is The Second Mountain. We'll be back in a minute. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. In border towns across Mexico, thousands of migrants wait for a chance to make asylum claims in U.S. ports of entry. Every two hours, I go ask immigration police if there's space. If there's not, I have to wait longer. A look at the backlog in Matamoros, Mexico, where some have been waiting for months this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind with uh, David Brooks. The book, his newest book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Um, I said right before the break, you talk about love throughout this book. You quote an English philosopher who calls love ontological rootedness. Mm -hmm. Love gives you a feeling of groundedness. And then you have that great quote from a friend who says, when my daughter was born, I found that I loved her more than evolution required. Love matters greatly in terms of that second mountain ability for us to connect and have a grounded existence. Right, yeah. yeah. We've spent so much time in our society uh, think, thinking about our brains and thinking cognitively about our brains as if we are primarily thinking creatures. But to me, we're primarily desiring creatures. And what we desire shapes who we are. St. Augustine said this 1600 years ago, you become what you love. And if you love money, you will always feel the lack of money. And if you love fame, you'll always feel you're not famous enough. If you love power, you'll always feel powerless. And so be careful what you love. And the moving to the second mountain means loving the right things and loving them all the way up. And so most of us, many of us, if we're lucky, fall in love with four big things. You fall in love with the family. Mm -hmm. You fall in love with the community, a place where you live. You fall in love with a vocation, something you love doing and you fall in love with the philosophy of faith, a set of ideas you can devote your life to. And so the book, a lot of the book is just, how do you choose those things? And then how do you execute on those, those commitments? And a commitment is just falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. So Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. <laughs> so, so some of it, some of, of commitment is very emotional, but some of it is very practical. How do you actually live out of marriage? How do you actually live out a vocation and a career? These are practical questions, but the only way you do it is if your love is strong enough to propel you through the hard times. 
Um, one of the reasons that that quote about uh, loving my daughter more than evolution requires is um, I had my first child a little bit later than most people. I was 43 when my son was born. And it occurred to me, uh, after he'd been alive for a couple months and I'd really gotten to feel him, uh, I had no idea what love was until my son yeah. was born. No I, idea at all. Right. I thought I did. Right. No, I find a lot. <laughs> I had that exact experience. I, I thought I knew what a commitment was, and then suddenly... Boom. <laughs> you never thought uh, imaginable. But that, that can happen also for a town. Some people, I ran into a guy recently in Youngstown, Ohio, who just loves Youngstown. He started his activist career just standing in town square with a sign that said, Defend Youngstown. And people said, This is what I'm going to live and die for. This is why I was put on this earth. You say at one point, I don't ask you to believe in God, but I ask you to believe in the fact that you have a soul. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I ask you to believe that there's some piece of you that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but it gives you infinite value and dignity, and that rich people don't know more of this than poor people, uh, that, uh, that slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another soul, that rape is not just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules in an attempt to insult another person's soul, and that anyth what obscenity is, it's covering over another person's soul. And so I think what the soul does, first of all, it gives us moral responsibility, a, a tiger is not responsible for what it eats, but we are morally responsible for what we do. And then it also gives you a yearning to lead a good life. Um, I've interviewed a lot of criminals and even people who've committed genocide. They all have some rationalization for why what they did was good. We all want to lead a good life. And Viktor Frankl wrote this famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, that we all search for meaning in our lives. And I think that search comes, comes out of our soul. Do you mind if I read a quote from your book? I do not. You quote Steinbeck in East of Eden yeah. in talking about uh, all of this notion of a soul and you know, understanding something about what, you know, finding goodness in your heart. And Steinbeck, uh, you, the passage is, humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, and in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. I think this is the only story we have and that it occurs on all levels of feeling and intelligence. And you, he goes on, a man after he's brushed off the dust and chips of his life will have left only the hard, clean questions. Was it good or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? Yeah. That's a beautiful it quote. It is a beautiful quote. And I like the quote because it reminds us, we sometimes numb ourselves to the moral things that are going on every day. I have in there a, a story about an Israeli daycare center that where the, the problem was the parents were coming late to pick up the kids, so the teachers were dragging out their day. And so they decided to fine the parents. If you come late, we're gonna pay a fine. And the number of parents who showed up late doubled because what had previously been a moral commitment to the teacher suddenly turned into an economic transaction. Yeah. And so we turn off the moral lens and turn on the economic lens. And a lot of our culture does that. We turn off the moral lens and we turn on the economic lens. You talked about marriage uh, just a minute ago. Um, and there, you use a phrase in the book that I'd love for you to, to explain a little more. You talk about the maximal marriage. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, there's a book out called, uh, well, there's a sociologist named Eli Finkel who's, who says the way people marry today, they, it's two individuals forming an alliance to pursue their own individual goals. And he calls that the self-expressive marriage. And he's not judging, he's just describing what is prevalent in the world. And in my view, that's not good enough that marriage should be a complete commitment, a complete surrender to the other person, mm -hmm. and a complete fusion. Uh, in the book, I have, some, I have some words from a guy named Tim Keller who says that about two years into the marriage, the person you thought was completely wonderful, you discover that she's actually kind of selfish. And at, that moment, at the moment you're making this discovery about her, she's making it about you. Yeah. And so you, you find that you have these selfishnesses, and you can either have a truce marriage where you agree we just won't deal with our selfishness. Or you can have a covenantal marriage where you, can, where you say, actually the core problem here is not your selfishness, it's my selfishness. And he says when both people decide that their selfishness is the core problem here, then you have the prospects of a great marriage. And then you, it's a total fusion of together. I think if you don't fuse completely together, it's tough to survive the hard time. Yeah. As you introduce this notion of, of marriage, you also, once again, you, you talk about love, you quote that famous passage from Corinthians. True, love is patient, love is kind. That, that's does not envy, yeah. does not boast, it's not proud, and goes on from yeah. there. Yeah, it's a very beautiful passage. Uh, and it, it's, um, 
it, marriage is so hard to describe, and I, I start the chapter with a passage, a poem, from a guy who lost his wife. Yeah. And he would go around the carpet trying to find pieces of her hair. Yeah. Uh, and then he stopped, and then a year later he was repotting an avocado, and he saw her hair in the avocado. Yeah. And it's easier to describe the loss because marriage is, is every day. It's like knowing my wife used to think that I was... That we were going to have lovely breakfast together, but now she learns that in the morning I'm, I'm not a sociable person, uh, and so she's reconciled to that, and so she knows that. But she knows that I like to get to the airport on time. I, yeah. I, I don't like to rush, and yeah. so she. It's about making those small compromises, and she likes to keep the home really neat. So I'm much neater than I used to be. Why did David Brooks decide to write about marriage? It's like sometimes I'll pick up your column in the Times, you know, on a given morning, and I'll read what you're writing about, and I'll say, well, he's not writing about Trump. He's not writing about Congress. He's not writing about prop. Why is he writing about marriage today? Yeah. Where does something like that come from? And why is marriage part of this yeah. book? And how does it fit into this notion of the second mountain? Right. Well, first, we're all working out our own stuff in public. Yeah. <laughs> so I got divorced. I didn't like being single. I wanted to get married. Yeah. So I want, how do you make that decision? And plus I teach at Yale and my students are going to make that decision. I want to give them advice on how you make that decision. But secondly, uh, one of my callings, frankly, is um, that I think our culture is over-politicized and under-moralized. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of talk about politics. And we should. It's important. But a lot of the th our lives are shaped by the quality of our relationships, the quality of our character. And we don't have too many forum to talk about those things. How do you do forgiveness? How do you learn from suffering? How do you live with gratitude? Um, how do you build a, a marriage relationship? Yeah. And these are the things that really hold the fabric of society together. And if we don't spread wisdom around about that stuff, then we're going to be bad at it and the whole fabric of society will be bad. And once the fabric of society is torn, your politics are bound to be pretty messed up. I, I've been thinking a lot lately, and I'd love your take on this, about the intersection of morality and politics in terms of an issue we've struggled with in Georgia during our just ended legislative session. And you know, you know this, Georgia has passed one of these heartbeat abortion bills right. that virtually outlaw abortion. Right. As we talk about it on Political Rewind, I find it really difficult. I know there are partisan divides. I get the political aspects of this. Right. But how do you hold in your head the notion that these are also moral questions, right. that the, anti, the people who believe that life begins at conception yeah. are not evil people. Right. They're not strictly talking about it for partisan gain. Yeah. It's a very hard uh, intersection to put together. Yeah. Does that make sense to right. you? Right, so I, we talked about the soul earlier. And so I think people have souls. Yeah. And when does the soul enter the body? Well, that's a tough question. Yeah. Uh, and I, I personally do not think it's at birth. I think it's somewhere before. But when before? <laughs> that's a tough question. How do we separate moral conversations right. without entangling them in politics and yeah. presuming that right. the people on the other side are yeah. politically evil compared to, it's right. just, there are times when politics and moral values really are hard to put together. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's just basic treating each other well. I mean, it, it's possible that the soul enters the body of conception. Yeah. It's possible it happens much later. It's possible to have wide degree of opinion on this subject. Yeah. And yeah. frankly, I, I think the Supreme Court did us a disfavor by um, making it in the federal level all or nothing. I think we probably would have reached an agreement the way every European country has, uh, you know, maybe allowing it up to a certain point, which is we have much more liberal policies than any European country, but they didn't have a court saying it's going to be all or nothing. Right. And so they got to a point. And we somehow got into an all or nothing fight. Tell you what, let's get another break out of the way. And when we come back, uh, let's keep talking about the book. But if it's okay, I want to talk to you a little about where we are in politics today sure. and about your journey politically these days as a conservative navigating the Washington that we live in today. Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. On the next Fresh Air, The Sustainable Food Revolution, we talk with Amanda Little, author of The Fate of Food, about efforts to create a global food supply 
for a world that will be hotter, drier, and more crowded. It includes meat cultured in a lab, 3D printer food, aquaculture, and indoor vertical farming. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. I'm Ross Terrell, GPB's reporter in Atlanta. I cover issues that affect the metro area, and I break down what they mean for people across the state and people just like you. Issues like MARTA expansion and new cityhood movements making their way through the Gold Dome. Listen to Georgia Public Broadcasting for in-depth reporting that matters and stand with the facts. I'm back uh, with uh, our special guest on today's Political Rewind, David Brooks. Uh, His new book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. You say something really interesting at the very beginning of the book. I'm writing this book to remind myself (laughs) of what I hope uh, I can live, the values I'd like to aspire to and live up to. You write a book to kick yourself in the butt so you'll be a, a better person. And you try to write your way to thinking, at least thinking and knowing how you should live. Um, I think I have a Kafka quote in there that, uh, yeah. we, that our book should be an axe to break up the frozen sea inside of us, yeah. which is a good way to put it. How are you doing, doing on your journey? You, you're very candid with us about the valley. Yeah. How are you doing climbing your second mountain? I'm in the foothills. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I some things, well, there were a couple goals I had that back then. I want to remarry and I have remarried. I'm blissfully happily. How long have you been remarried now? Uh, almost two years now. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. And, um, and I wanted to f- found a galaxy of warm places. Yeah. I wanted there to be warm places in my life that I went to regularly. And so I'm part of a community in DC. We have dinner together every Thursday night. Um, and I'm part of uh, a work at the Aspen Project and we meet amazing, we call them weavers. People are building community around the country. And so I've, I begin to establish these places where, um, where there's a lot of warmth. You met Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson. Yes. And in many ways, they changed your life. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I, my, one of my theories is that nobody can climb out of their valley on their own. They need somebody to reach in and help them. And so it was 2013. I was invited over to their house for dinner. And in those days, I was taking in the invitation. And um, I w- walk in there, and they have a son named Santi who um, was in the DC public schools and he had a friend whose mom had some health and drug issues and this kid didn't always have a place to live or something to eat. So they said, well, James can come live with us. And then James had a friend and that kid had a friend. And by the time I walked to their house for dinner six years ago, there are 30 kids around the table and I don't know, 15 seem to be (laughs) sleeping around the house. And I walk in there and the kid, we call them kids, but back then they were about 16 to 18 years old. And uh, I walk in, I reach out my hand to shake a kid's hand named Ed. And he said, we don't shake hands here. We hug here. (laughs) And so I'm not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, but I've been hugging ever since. And those kids are, they're emotionally transparent. And they just, they give you love, they demand love, and they teach you how to be loving and how to be a warm person and how to share everything. We we have the same meal every Thursday uh, and we go around the table and we, um, we share our stuff, what's going on in life. And sometimes it's really good. A kid gets a GED exam, gets a job at the barbershop. One, one of our James, who I mentioned, is now trained to be a fireman. And sometimes it's bad. Uh, depression, um, you know, pregnancy. Uh, one of the young ladies, her kidney failed, and David mm. Simpson gave her a kidney. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and so I took my daughter there. And she said, that's the warmest place I've ever been. <laughs> and it is, it is amazing. I laughed so much on Thursday nights. And uh, we're just, I just booked a vacation rental. We're all taking all these DC kids up to the Cape Cod. So we're gonna be out there together for a week. Um, and there, it's a community of, now it's stretched out probably, um, I don't know, 50 or 60 uh, young people. They're older now. When they were young, we told them they'd go to college and so now we're paying for 18 college tuitions. <laughs> and so we started a nonprofit called AOKDC. Um, and um, it's just, you know, we have our families, but this is a second family. And I, I think second families are important in this society because a lot of people, they move away from their family or their family situation isn't great. And so the creation of second families is, um, 
is just an important innovation that's been great for me. There was another perspective in your book that hit me especially uh, hard, and it was um, Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. You talk about Tolstoy as a guy who had a very successful <laughs> climb up the first mountain, obviously. Yeah. One of the greatest writers in world literature and recognized as such fairly, fairly yeah. early on. Right away. He was very popular. He knew yeah. how good he was. <laughs> and then he had, an, he had an incident. It wasn't his own. It wasn't some tragedy that befell him specifically, but right. he witnessed something that changed his life. Yeah, well, first he had the death of his brother. Yes. He couldn't explain yes. why the brother lived or died, and yes. that bugged him. But then he was in Paris, and in those days they did public executions, and they did it through beheading, and he watched one, and he, he had this feeling deep in his gut that no matter what people said, according to whatever theory, that what he had just seen was wrong and would always be wrong, that an execution, a beheading was wrong. And so that led to the conclusion, well, maybe life is not just about what men's opinions are, but there's a thing as absolute truth. And I've been living my life according to people's opinions, trying to be perfect in their eyes, but now I realize there's an absolute truth. I've been ignoring that. My whole life has not been oriented toward what it should have been oriented about. And so he had all the guns removed from his DACA. Uh, he t had ropes taken away because he was really a threat to kill himself. Because he thought, I've just been, my, my life has been a madness. Yeah. And he had a valley. Um, and then eventually he discovered he became Christian, but he also yeah. uh, devoted himself to the poor and tried to live like a serf. And his style of writing changed quite a lot. We're not often confronted with an execution. <laughs> right. But one of the things I think you make clear in the book, and I think you're right, is that each of us at some moment is confronted with a question about how have I lived my life yeah. and how am I going to move forward? Where have I gone wrong? Where have I gone right? And that's just the journey I'm on. Okay. Um, we've, got, we've got some time left. You actually offer us uh, a roadmap in the end of the book, to how we, in fact, can have a more successful climb up yeah. that second mountain. Yeah, well, first of all, there, it's organized around four commitments yes. and how to do them well. But then there's a, a, a philosophy, which I try to sum up at the end, which is rejecting a lifestyle based on hyper-individualism, that life is an individual journey, and then embracing a philosophy which I call relationalism, putting relation at the center. And of course, it's easy to say relation is at the center. I'm going to live for my relationships. But it's really hard to do. Yeah. And so how exactly do you actually do that with your marriage partner or f with your friends or with your kids or with the people you work with? And I try to, I may, I may not have added any value in this book, but I have a lot of great quotations in this book. Yeah. A lot of people who are really got some pearls of wisdom that I hope people will find useful. And I certainly found it useful. All right. So let's turn to politics for a few minutes. First of all, uh, how do you when you think about what you've written here, think about this in terms of what life in Washington is like yeah. right now. Well, if you look at um, the, the quality of relationships on Capitol Hill, yeah. abysmal, just abysmal. Yeah. I, I have a friend who's a senator, and he'd been a senator for four or five years, and I said, have you made any friends here? I said, I asked him that, uh, and he said, no, I don't really think you make friends after age 40. And A, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> But B, it just, it was a way of explaining why he'd been in the Senate but hadn't made any friends, because they're all sort of sharks circling each other, doing parallel play, and they're in party alliances, but they don't have time, they're not around, uh, to really become friends with each other. And as a result, they can say the most na nasty things about each other without any remorse. You know, it's funny you said that, because I was thinking about having had conversations with Cokie Roberts about what was yeah. life was like for her yeah. when she was a kid growing up in Washington when her father was one of the most important members of Congress. And when she talks about the family being up there in Washington right. together, um, it reminds me, nobody lives in Washington anymore. Yeah. Members go up for four days a week. They show up Monday evening, yeah. maybe. They hope there aren't going to be votes on Friday yeah. so they can go back to the district. And the lack of, not only just from a social point of view, right. getting together with that other family of a Republican or a Democrat, right. but the members themselves have lost touch with what daily life with their own family right. members are right. like. And when they go home, you know, if you fly to Washington on a Thursday evening, the members are on the plane, the senator's up in first class and the house members yeah. in the back. Yeah. And then they, and they get home and they're fundraising. So their lives are, are really hard. 
And I, I salute them. I mean, they're, I think they're in it for the right reason because the, their life is so unglamorous. But the lack of connection, which is a big yeah. part of what you talk about right. here, probably does have an impact on why they have lost, there's no comedy left yeah. in Yeah, you know, I always ask people who, are, who go into an administration, say, <laughs> what'd you learn in government that you didn't know beforehand? Yeah. And one answer I get from time to time is, I used to think government was like 75% personality in relationships. Now I realize it's 95% personality mm -hmm. in relationships. You have to build coalitions and you've got to say, I trust you, I'll, I'll give this one to you, you give me the next one. And that sort of thing just doesn't exist anymore. And that's why very little gets passed these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's certainly no relationship between, now between Congress and the White House, even within the same party, really. And so it's just these yawning gaps where there should be normal connections. I love that movie, Lincoln, because hmm. it was about politics. Yeah. It was about, you know, how do you maneuver people around, how you build coalitions, how, like, Lincoln understood what did each member actually need. They were all distinct. And that celebrated politics as the art of relationship and the art of the possible. And that stuff has sort of gotten a bad name now, or we just don't do it. How is your brand of conservatism? fit into the into the Washington of today. I mean, you're yeah. you're you are a conservative sort of in the William F. Buckley mold, right. really. I yeah. mean, you're a thoughtful conservative. You're not a hard right conservative, never right. have been. Is there a place for your brand of conservatism outside the op ed pages yeah. of a major newspaper? I find I run into people who are who agree with me, but it's not in the official institutional movements. Yeah. And so I'm my heroes are William, F I mean, well, William F. Buckley, but also Edmund Burke, yeah. who said, you know, he's, it's like, do, do change, but the world is really complicated. Be humble about what you think you can do. So change should be incremental, gradual, and constant. And my other hero is Alexander Hamilton, and he believed in creating limited but energetic government to create a world where young, poor boys and girls could rise and succeed in a capitalist economy. Yeah. And so that puts you sort of in the middle. Uh, and so, for example, one of the things that I've noticed is that we have this big debate, big government versus small government. If you look at the most successful societies on earth, they have pretty generous welfare states, yeah. but they also have very free markets. They needed the free markets to pay for the generous welfare states. And so that, our debate is all wrong. We should define a welfare state that will take care of the needy, but we should liberate the market to generate prosperity for it. We're headed in the opposite direction. Yeah. So we don't both. do either. <laughs> right, exactly. So... Uh, and to me, that's the right answer. And I still fundamentally believe in the principles that I grew up with. I think they're more true than ever. But I don't see, I think that, frankly, I think the Democrats have gotten too, you know, I, they set off my anti-socialism alarm bells a lot. I, I just don't think concentrated government power is very effective a lot yeah. of the time. And a lot of the Green New Deal stuff would just concentrate a massive power in central planners. And then the Republicans don't seem to me conservative much at all, frankly. Right. They seem more reactionary to me, the closing of the borders and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I, I feel politically homeless right now. But the good news is there are a lot of people like me, and there's a lot of movement and energy now. And I see new coalitions and new ideas forming. Where do you see that? Well, for example, there's a thing called the Niskanen Center, which is a new think tank. But it, it's a bunch of former libertarians who are no longer libertarians, and they're thinking things anew. And they're trying to chart out a new center that is not like the old center. And sometimes they're, they can seem pretty liberal, especially on a welfare policy and, and creating programs to support the poor. Sometimes they can see more free market on trade, say, for example, or on immigration. We should have immigration. And they just combine things in new ways. But the most exciting part is they've given themselves permission to shake off the old categories and just say, well, what works here? And that's, that's a very liberating thing because most people are very team-oriented and they know what they're supposed to think and then they go off and defend that. Yeah. So this is where the hope is, not within the parties, but right. with the thinkers out there who are looking, exploring entirely yeah. new ways of seeing it, viewing the problems right. we're facing and new ways to yeah. solve them is I what you're saying. I do think ideas drive history. Politicians are too busy to think. And so they receive ideas from others who are thinking them. And conservatism, William F. Buckley had to come before Ronald Reagan or Martin Friedman. And the same with liberalism. Feminism, you had, you had to have Betty Friedan before you could have the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. You've got to have the ideas that come first and ideas drive history. And we're in a period, I think, of great fertility. The Trump era has reintroduced ourselves to our country and encouraged a lot of people to think, well, 
if he's not the right answer, what is the right answer? And so as our politics some ways get rigid, and even AOC and some of the people on yeah. the left, Bernie, they're thinking new things, they're thinking bigger thoughts. And I may agree, I may not agree, but it's new. Well, David Brooks, uh, we're out of time. And the fact that you uh, bring us to a point where you actually see some hope for where we're <laughs> headed, uh, despite all of the dysfunction in Washington today, is about as good a way as I can think of to uh, thank you for being here. So well, thank you for the book. Thank you for being with us on Political Rewind I, I've loved today. It. It's been a very fun conversation. Thanks. David Brooks' new book is The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. That's it for today's Political Rewind. We're all headed up to Cartersville now, where we'll record an edition of Political Rewind in front of a live audience at the Grand Theater. It's a big venue, and so there are still some seats available. So if you're in the Cartersville area and would like to be part of our show, please plan to arrive at the Grand no later than 6 p.m. to secure a seat. We'll begin the show right at 7. The Cartersville Show will air on GPB Radio and Facebook Live in our regular time slot at 2 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. I'm Bill Nygut. See you then.